Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winchett Sanchez, a national reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me this week at the Arizona Republic's Capitol Bureau are... David Garcia, Democratic candidate for governor of Arizona. Ron Hansen, I cover the congressional delegation. Ricardo Cano, I cover education. This week on The Gaggle, we welcome our very first guest to the show. He had the guts to show up. This is a really big deal for us. David Garcia is a Democrat from Phoenix. He's vying for his party's nomination to take on Governor Doug Ducey, a Republican in the November general election. David, thank you for being here. Absolutely. I'm excited about this. This week on The Gaggle, what does the body language between Representative Kirsten Sinema and Representative Martha McSally tell us about how the U.S. Senate race might look during a potential head-to-head? What does Diane Douglas have to say about her lack of evolution standards uh, at the Department of Education? But first, David Garcia, you had some good news this week. Internal polling shows you with a clear lead over your Democratic rivals, Senator uh, Steve Farley and Kelly Fryer, a Tucson Democrat who has worked in the nonprofit sector. Arizona is still a red state, but primaries uh, and special elections from around the country are giving Democrats in Arizona hope here that a blue wave could indeed come crashing ashore during the midterm. You've been watching these uh, races, David. We've had progressive women in Kentucky, Texas, Georgia make history in all those states. What do these victories tell you about what could happen here? Well, yeah, thank you. Um, first off, let me start with what's already happened here, because I think Arizona has been changing, not as deep red as people think it is. Uh, d- Democrats have made progress in the last two elections, for example, winning six of nine races here in Maricopa County. Uh, we did well uh, winning Maricopa County. I mean, maybe you all can answer this for me. I think actually, this is the right place to be. Um, as I understand it, in 2014, you know, we won Maricopa, Pima, and Coconino, and weren't able to carry the state. And I've been told that we're the answer to a trivia question. Don't know if that's true or not. Maybe you guys can answer that for me. But it shows that there's been some progress before um, before these wave elections. Um, and so coming into this, we believe that statements are really what it's about. The, you, you mentioned uh, those candidates and those campaigns, but those are really all about making a statement. And, and we believe that making a statement and standing for something and getting out there and showing contrast is what voters are appealing to and what they're going to vote for. And most importantly, what's going to drive turnout coming up in November. I mean, talking about turnout, the demographic profile here in Arizona still, while it has changed some, it still remains pretty consistent with, you know, Republicans still outnumber Democrats, independents break for uh, Republicans. How do you change that fundamentally? We've got to change that fundamentally. I, I believe that not it's, it's not until the demographic population of Arizona, or the voting population of Arizona looks like the demographic population of Arizona, that we've got a real reflection of what the voice of Arizona is. And it is a central part of our campaign. We're seeing a lot of energy. Democrats are alive and moving and excited out there. They're connecting in ways. You know, we've got folks that are coming together in places like Sun City and realizing that there are other Democrats out there um, that they're that they're connecting with. But above and beyond that energy, we've got to change the electorate by bringing new people in. And it means a younger, more diverse electorate. And I believe that when we do that, we'll get a better reflection of what Arizona wants going forward. And I think uh, it's going to bode well for Democrats in November. So I covered the 8th District special election throughout the winter and April. Um, 
and we saw Harold Tipernani really overperform against what we had come to expect for Democrats in a place where Democrats really haven't done well in decades. So I'm with you that things are changing and, and progressing. And all that said, we still have Congresswoman Debbie Lesko today. How is it that you in particular, for example, can get over the hump in a way that others have not, whether it's Harold Tipperneni or, uh, you know, Carmona or Goddard or whoever you want to pick from the past? How is it that your campaign now can get to where they hope to achieve? That's a, a good question. Look, here's, here's how I see it. Our, our biggest growth potential as Democrats is among the Latino community. That's where yeah, Latinos are a third of Arizona's population, about a quarter of the voting population. Um, and it's when the Latino community votes at the percentages in which we are reflective of Arizona that we can start to have that impact. Um, I was born and raised here, and I've yet to have somebody with my last name at the top of the ticket to vote for. Latinos have been asked to play defense a lot, vote against 1070, vote against Arpaio, vote against Pierce. And we believe, I believe, that having something to vote for for the first time in a long time is going to be a positive message and is going to help get people off the couch and get them excited about being part of a campaign. Um, so I do think that is a difference maker. And we're seeing this in uh, our door knocking with folks who we meet. They, they have no idea who the current governor is. They're excited to have somebody who shares their story um, uh, running for governor. And uh, to me, among all the candidates that you just mentioned, that is a big difference maker for us. And we believe you add those additional votes to this energy that's out there that's happening organically. And, you know, those two things together are enough to get over the top. So when you're talking to Latino voters and maybe, you know, first time voters, young voters, what are the issues that they care about? I mean, if if Doug Ducey isn't speaking their language, how do you do it? Yeah, it, it's the same issues. Education is a number one. Education is the number one issue, not just uh, K-12, but, but preschool as well, university access. Those issues are consistent and universal regardless of, of where you go. Um, but one of the things that's different, though, is the messenger. And I pay attention and our team pays attention to why don't people vote? These are your non-voters. And your non-voters, when they see two people up there that look like the same old politicians, even late in the 16 campaign, by the way, some of your non-voters, a good percentage of them, didn't see a difference between Trump and Clinton, for example. Um, it is about contrast. It's about the messenger. It's about, it's about communicating to them directly, both in English and in Spanish, which I do, um, and them looking at you as a candidate and saying, look, if I vote for this guy, something is going to be different in Arizona. And so we can't, I, we're not discounting that. We are uh, unabashedly standing by issues that we know are going to advance Arizona families as well as the state of Arizona. But going out there and saying it in a way and communicating it in a way that connects with people, we, we think is a difference maker. So tangibly, how different would education, for example, look under your administration than what we've seen under the Ducey administration or under a Farley administration? Tangibly, it's going to be funded under my administration. <laughs> um, it is going to be funded. Look, I'm an educator. We've got the backing of our education association because for them, people have stood up. And speaking of speaking of contrast and the messenger, how many how many educated people have stood up and said, "I'm the next education governor"? You've heard that. You can roll your eyes like teachers do all the time when they hear that. But I, I'm different. 
for the first time in a long time, we're going to have a governor who's an educator, who has a very different view of the world. Um, and so funding is going to be a number one. That means that class sizes are going to get a chance to be reduced. Look, I don't think folks understand, unless you're in education, how tough it is to just manage a classroom that is overcrowded. But one more thing we will do, by the way, is we are also going to focus on moving away from standardized testing as our primary, if not singular, measure of understanding student achievement. We're going to let our teachers teach because I believe that that is just as detrimental to the profession as we get smart folks, best and brightest. We throw them in a classroom and box them in, and we're going to give them an opportunity to teach. Focus on some real-world outcomes that make a difference in students' lives, and I think our schools are going to get better, be better places to teach and learn. Um, getting away from testing is, is something that um, your 2014 opponent, Diane Douglas, ha has, has been vocal about. I think she shares some of the, the main points that you have. So, I mean, specifically, what can the state do to, to deviate from it? Oh, specifically, we can do a lot. Turns out that this is one of my areas. Uh, I was a national uh, expert in school accountability and assessment. Um, look, we need to get to outcomes that are measurable, that are standardized, that are valid, that are not a standardized test. And I'll give you some examples. AP credits. AP credits right now do not count in how we think about and evaluate schools. We've got ways of students leaving, exiting with two languages, by the way, with certified exams that can do that. We've got service hours. When a school in Arizona wins a national award of some sort, that doesn't count in a meaningful way. Um, uh, career and technical education certificates right now are standardized, measurable, valid. Those can be included. So there's a number of things that you can include that are not a bubble standardized test. Look, folks, the, the, the more we get students ready for standardized tests, the less prepared they are for life after high school. And I firmly believe that the state, the country, the region that breaks from this standardized testing model is going to have students leave that are ready to create because that is the future. Um, and ready to develop new ideas, and I believe our state is in a position to do that. So you've done this before, four years ago. Um, what have you learned from that experience? Uh, you know, how is this time going to be different than what you did then? We learned a big lesson in 2014, and the lesson was turnout. As you know, turnout was one of the lowest on record, particularly here in Maricopa County. And I learned then that if we do not focus on turnout, the policies, the ideas that we're talking about today just aren't going to come to fruition. And so the difference is, and I, you, know, you ask any statewide candidate, are they going to make up that gap if they're a Democrat? Um, and you, know, the, you should have a good answer to that. Um, but that is the biggest difference is turnout, turnout, turnout. Like I said, we're seeing some organic energy with folks coming out and marching in various ways, but we've got to add new voters to that. And when we do, that's when you get the numbers out there to win. But uh, that was my biggest lesson in 2014 was turnout. We saw enthusiasm dropping in 2014, um, and you know, we were working our best to get them out there uh, to, to vote, but that's, that's the case. How much of that is separate from what's happening nationally? Because when I think of 2014, I think of it being just basically a Republican year anyway, especially, you know, this is an anti-Obama pushback. You saw Republicans really kind of uh, finding themselves on a number of issues um, and that sort of setting a tone that probably carried itself all the way through the ticket. Um, that has, you know, negative impact if you're a Democrat running, you know, in a statewide superintendent's race, for example. This cycle, obviously, it feels like it's a Democratic year, and that should help you. That's the Trump bump, right? Mm -hmm. But um, 
is that enough? And, you know, how is it that you can just bank on, you know, uh, those wins sort of pushing you across the finish line or, or not, do you? Yeah, I, I push back on that a little bit because, and I, let me tell you why. We get this question about what about national trends. It assumes that you have no impact locally. It assumes that, you know, what happens nationally is going to happen locally. We knew that in 2014. And we got close. We got closer than any other Democrat. By the way, with good people running like Terry Goddard, uh, we were able to make up that difference. And it's because we, you take these national trends and to some extent, there's nothing you can do about them. But the question is, how can you focus locally on trying to make up that gap? And we got really close in 2014 and it wasn't an accident. Um, we focused on parts of the state that we thought had folks who were persuadable and ready to vote for strong public schools and got a good number of them to go RRRD when they got down to us. Um, and that was our way of kind of pushing back on some national trends. Now, what we're seeing here is a Trump bump. I call it a Trump bump. It's a statistical overrepresentation. I'm a statistics professor, by the way, of Democrats in about every election since 2016. I mean, even down ballot elections. I believe that's coming to Arizona. I don't think it's enough to win. Uh, above and beyond that, you've got to go out and get local and try to find out where can I get those additional votes above and beyond what we're going to see. And these are folks that aren't they're running from something. Um, our philosophy is to give them something that they can vote for and run to that'll be a difference maker. So how many new voters are we talking about? What's your metric? What's your standard there? Sure. So, you know, you look at the difference. Um, we, we believe that in the number of new voters that we need to bring on board in the neighborhood of about 75,000 new voters um, or organically. Right? That is above and beyond what we're seeing already. Uh, and the numbers are out there to get that. So talking a little bit about the local Democratic Party. I mean, one thing I think that is different than in past years is we that we're seeing a bench, right? We're seeing the formation of a bench. We have not seen a bench, um, with all due respect to Democrats, in many years. I mean, Harold Tipperney over in CD8, the fact that they would even run a candidate. Um, and then you have candidates at the legislative level, uh, newcomers, albeit, but credible, it appears, candidates, statewide candidates, January Contreras, Mark Cardenas, uh, at the uh, Department of Education level, Hoffman. Hoffman and David Shapira, Kathy Hoffman. So what is bringing about this new energy other than Trump with the Democrats? You can't just say other than Trump <laughs> because Trump is bringing a lot of this new energy. Uh, so to, an to answer your question, there are a number of folks who just woke up after 16 and realized I can't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is, this is driving energy from people who are starting indivisible groups, for example. This is PCs increasing in the Democratic Party, all the way up to people realizing, you know what, I've got to step in and, and, and run. Uh, I appreciate your optimism about a bench here in Arizona. It's exciting that people are running. And to build a bench, though, we got to win. And that's when you can start building a long-term bench in Arizona. Like my, my goal is in nine years from now, and yeah, that means we've won twice to make that happen, to have built a bench here in Arizona. I'm from here, born and raised. My goal is to, to build this state. I'm an educator, by the way, and as an educator, your job is to um, train folks and get them ready to do things that are better than what you did. 
And my hope is that in after, after an opportunity to do that, we have a bench that can lead Arizona for the next generation. That would be exciting. But it's all got to start with people stepping up, and they are stepping up to run for office. I believe we're going to see a number of successes, and then we can start building a long-term bench to have an impact in Arizona. So with enthusiasm and with a bench, you also get a little bit of drama that comes along with it, right? And we are seeing, um, I mean, at least Ron and I are, so a little bit of that drama spilling over um, with the progressives and the maybe more moderate, uh, you know, traditional Democrats who, um, I guess some people would just consider them the establishment Democrats. I mean, how do you see that drama playing out or affecting enthusiasm in the general election, if at all. All right. Here is where I'm a boring guest. I am just anti-drama. I'm just not a drama guy. There's a lot to be said for being anti-drama. I'm just anti-drama. But I will do my best to indulge uh, for all you drama fans out there. You know, we're not seeing that in our campaign. We are getting support. And if you look at our list of endorsements, we have endorsements from very progressive organizations in, uh, in both locally as well as nationally and more institutional organizations, um, I, organizations that have been in this fight for a long time, whether it's through women's issues for Planned Parenthood or education through the Arizona Education Association. And so I believe our campaign has remained relatively drama-free because we have gotten so much great support from, a, from democratic organizations across the board. Um, and, and that is honest. I think we're at, at over 23, 25 endorsements, um, and they, are, they do run the gamut um, on the democratic side. You know, in 14, we were a little drama-free, too. We were able to get endorsements that Democrats don't normally get. Uh, folks like the Chamber, for example, jumped on board in 2014. And so through trying to stay drama-free, uh, you know, you don't waste a little, uh, don't expend a lot of energy there. But I get the argument. I've heard it nationally. We just haven't seen it on our campaign very much. So one more question that's on my mind. You, you've talked a lot about changing the turnout model and, and trying to, you know, uh, get people off the couch, off the sidelines on this. When we look at the registration numbers across Arizona, we're not seeing a, a tidal wave of new Democrats signing up. Um, it, in the aggregate, it looks like registration is relatively static for Democrats. It's not keeping up with Republicans in some places in more conservative corners. We don't see dramatic shifts in even Democratic outposts. Why is that, and how does that fit into what you're trying to accomplish? You know, looking at both party registrations, um, Republicans haven't been increasing in extraordinary numbers as well. Look, I, I think pe- I think folks are are when they register, are registering as independents. And often organizations that are out registering voters are registering them as independents as well. I think folks, regardless of party, get a little tired of the drama with party politics. And being associated with it, I think this is also, by the way, a focus we're going to have to increase turnout. You know, one of the things you see, and we saw this in 16, we saw this in 14, is negative ads, and they're coming, uh, they don't change people's minds. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to re- folks to realize and change their minds. What it does is it sickens people to the process. They don't want to be part of the political process. And so they don't go out and vote because they're waiting for this thing to be over. Uh, so I believe that uh, folks are ready to be involved, may not be ready to join a party per se, 
Um, but I think that uh, this is part of that turnout model. This is part about about getting out there in a different way that hopefully uh, we believe is going to get them on board off the couch and to the ballot box or at least to their mailbox. I mean, does it really matter if they register to be Democrats? I've been out, I was out at one event talking to voters, a Republican women's event a couple of weekends ago, and this is a group of upper middle class women. And several of them in there said, I don't, I, I'm, I'm breaking with my party and I'm, I already know I'm crossing over to vote for cinema. Like, party be damned. I don't care about the label. So does it really even matter that they register as Democrats? Well, I think the question is, those numbers give you some idea of, of your base. I think those numbers do. Our, our campaign in 14 and our campaign now is really built on a set of values that we believe cross party lines. That's how we did so well in 14. We won in areas of Maricopa County that are primarily Republican, but we knew had very strong public schools. And we appealed to those folks on a message around strong public schools, not party as an affiliation, but strong public schools, and we're very successful in a lot of places. So I, I think that this idea of party affiliation, not only is it uh, problematic to understand where people stand, I think it's also where they would like to stand, but I think it's also problematic with respect to whether now we can count on their votes because we got to get out there and, and lead on a set of values. Look, I think that folks are going to jump on board of our campaign, Republicans or Democrats who want to see strong public schools. And I would argue that that's not a Republican message or a Democratic message. Uh, that's a message that is literally every family is counting on them across Arizona to help their kids do better than they did. Um, and I think for those reasons, folks are going to cross party lines. So I know we've gone back and forth about the notion of money in this race. Your campaign tends to think it uh, doesn't matter maybe as much as the media or the, the mainstream political punditry might think it does. Seems to me that it still is going to matter quite a bit. So how do you overcome that challenge if you move forward in the to the general with Ducey, who clearly is a he'll bring in mega buck. You just said something interesting. I was talking to a supporter and he looked, he, he gave me a different perspective. He said, where would Ducey be without all of this outside money coming in? You said bringing in. And I hadn't thought about it that way, but what you're the basis of your question, your assumption is on money that is coming in, not from Arizonans, not from within the state, but from outside the state. And I hadn't thought about it that way. And it opened my eyes because this idea of having money all on the other side isn't Arizonans putting money into this race, at least by and large, to exert what they'd like to see happen. These are outside organizations who want to keep the governorship for other reasons. And so for me, I think that's telling because, look, we're also in a very different environment right now where broadcast messages, I think, are not as effective as other ways of targeting people. Uh, I do believe that a door knock matters in very important ways, particularly, by the way, for your voter that is not engaged, uh, a door knock from somebody that they know is is important. And so from our perspective, yeah, it's going to be a battle. I won't I won't deny that. And we're going to have to overcome uh, the funding advantage. But we believe that the energy is in Arizona organically to make it happen. And things like Red for Ed, by the way, if you think about this one, money was poured into a positive pro-education campaign. Uh, you know, would you believe Arizona is this state that's done great? And in the middle of that campaign, 
50,000 teachers walked out, right? Um, I do believe that what people are seeing and hearing on the ground, their reality is very different than the broadcast messages that they're getting fed through, you know, through um, advertisements. Um, getting on the subject of what people are hearing on the ground in regards to education, because it is going to be a big issue this election. Um, you know, what are you hearing from folks in terms of the fallout of the walkout? So um, obviously, Red for Ed pressured state lawmakers to invest more money in education in this budget than they were talking about prior to the walkout and this movement. But, um, you know, you're starting to see some school districts giving 15% pay raises, significant on paper, that are pretty drastic. Um, how are how are voters responding to that? Is that lessening the the urgency in any way or i don't think it's lessening the urgency i think it's showing people what's possible uh for the first time in a very long time you know educators are realizing and their allies by the way that they've got the power to do something you know what i what i have seen as a parent and as an educator is over and over again i'm kind of tired of the legislature saying this is a good start um, we're gonna. This is a good start. This is a good beginning. Folks do not walk out for a start. They walk out for a solution. And I don't think they're gonna they're gonna stop until they get a solution. And they've made it clear they're going to the ballot with an initiative, which, by the way, uh, I do think is going to be successful. Uh, I think it's ironic teachers have the summer off, so they got time and energy to go get some uh, some signatures. Um, and I think they are committed. Uh, to making sure that there is a solution this time, not a start. And they're doing this the right way. They understand their dedicated revenue source is important. Otherwise, when they go back to the classroom in a year or two from now, it's going to be unraveled while they are teaching their students. And they're making it clear, if you listen to them, that not only do we need a dedicated revenue source, we need to change leadership too. And it's something I hear over and over again among educators and among teachers. You know, they came down to the legislature, saw the, came down to the Capitol, they saw the legislature in action. And I can't think of a single one that wasn't appalled about what they saw there and are ready to make some changes. So it cracks me up um, talking a little bit about the disconnect, I guess. Uh, you know, the Republican consulting class, of course, once again, is dismissing uh, the notion that so many signatures could be gathered by people for Invest in Red because everyone's going to be on vacation in San Diego. And it's like, Oh my gosh, you missed it the first time with no one 305. And now you're missing it again because you're out vacationing. Those teachers aren't, right? Those teachers aren't. And by the way, I would not put anything past them. They will go to San Diego uh, to get Arizona signatures. They, they will. They are organized. Uh, look, when I, when I, I knew that I, I know that folks were in trouble for two reasons. Number one, there's a whole DIY industry. You guys know what DIY? There's a whole red for ed DIY industry going on. You know, when you get the DIYers against you or in your favor, you're in really good shape, number one. And, you know, teachers are out there. They're laminating their stuff. They're ready to go. I mean, they're organized. Um, I, I would not discount them at all because they are extremely, extremely organized. They definitely seem to have ripped a page from the 305 playbook, which clearly was highly effective. A couple more questions before we let you go. Going back to the outside spending, will you accept spending on your behalf uh, by outside groups or out-of-state groups? You don't have a, a choice to do that. I mean, that's the whole point of independent expenditure. Just the problem with dark money. 
is that as a campaign, you're not part of those conversations. As you know, we can't be. So you're not in a position to accept or not accept those. those. That's the reason why we've got to change that too, by the way. Uh, you know, and, and personally, as, a, as, a, as, a, as somebody who is a voter and who has ran, it was really problematic for me in 14 to be driving to church with my family and my wife to open up the paper and for the first time see expenditures that were put in either both for and against our campaign in 2014. It's against my principles as somebody who should be held accountable and responsible for your actions. And so you, you, don't, have, uh, you don't have control over that. But I'll tell you what, it's problematic because as a campaign, you know, not having that kind of control over the message and what goes out is to me uh, an issue. In 14, folks came to us and said, did you put this on my door? And I hadn't seen it for the first time. It was an organization that did it. Um, and we got to change that. we got to change that so that we have some clear accountability and transparency with who's out there um, and so that when candidates talk to voters, they know that that, that, that communication is going to be direct. So would you denounce such spending if it were to come for your... We're going to be in a position. To, we're we're going to be in a position to denounce with what comes in. Uh, that again, um, but what, what's that going to do? No, what's that going to do? It, it doesn't. It doesn't help you out any. Um, and I think it's a problem. I think every everyday Arizonans, if they understood this is how it works, uh, and I know it's a hard one. Dirty money, dark money is hard to explain to your average Arizonan. But if they understood how this works, I think it would be against their sensibilities and their own sense of personal accountability to recognize that this process is influencing their vote and eventually what happens in their communities. So spill a little tea for us here. You are fundraising like crazy, I'm sure, like your your opponents. What's going to be like the most controversial thing that people are going to find in your campaign finance reports when they come due? I think our most controversial has already started to happen. Um, public knowledge, uh, we have gotten endorsed by the People for the American Way, which is Norman Lear's uh, political organization. Uh, I did attend a Hollywood fundraiser. Um, and those folks are on our, on, on our, on our, on our donor list. Um, and I think that's going to be the most controversial part. Uh, although I did get some, uh, credit, at least within my family. Uh, they're big blackish fans and been Tracy Ellis Ross, is that right? Uh, was there and that was probably the most exciting thing for my daughters was for me to take a selfie with her. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um. Uh, being our first guest, you you are setting the standard for what uh, what future guests will have to follow. All downhill from here, I think. <laughs> if people want to follow you on Twitter or learn more about your campaign, where can they go? Everything is DG, my initials, DG, the number 4AZ.com, or at Twitter, it's DG4AZ, Facebook, DG4AZ. Um, that's, where you, that's where you'll find us. And uh, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Ron, you spent several hours here in Phoenix at a House subcommittee hearing. You went in probably thinking you were going to write about opioids and what's happening along the border and the ports. Turns out you walked away with another story. Tell us about it. Yeah, so often in politics, it's what's not said that is more interesting than what's said. Uh, this was a, a House uh, congressional hearing on opioids and, and the border. 
and it was convened by Martha McSally, who chairs this subcommittee. She had five other members of the Arizona delegation with her, including her possible Senate opposition candidate, uh, Kirsten Cinema. Governor Doug Ducey spoke for about uh, 10 minutes and took some questions for another 10 more. And after that, um, he left the panel, talked to reporters for a few minutes with Martha McSally, and when we returned, Kirsten Cinema was gone. So that sort of became the story today, uh, this whole question of uh, was this really just for appearances? Did this sort of give short shrift to the issue? What, if anything, does it say about this possible showdown with McSally in the fall? Um, of course, the cinema campaign sees it as much ado about nothing. The uh, McSally, uh, for example, she took this to as you know a question of well, what's more important than talking about this this scourge that has killed thousands of people across the country and 800 in Arizona just last year. So. Um, there was int some interesting body language. There were some interesting uh, decisions to leave and go to other uh, events in Casa Grande and Tucson and elsewhere. So she spent maybe then 30, about 30 minutes at the subcommittee hearing. She looked engaged. She asked a question or two. That's about the same amount of time that, time that she spent on Tuesday filing her paperwork to run for U.S. Senate. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, you know, it's the kind of thing that when you talk about politicians, optics matter. And the fact is that um, when you devote more energy to saying I'm on the ballot than saying I care about this important issue, it's the sort of thing that can can just rub people the wrong way. Her campaign, I, I want to emphasize, uh, her folks say, look, Kirsten Cinema worked as a social worker early in her life, that she has worked on behalf of these issues for some time. She is continuing to do so from her perch in Congress now. So this was not about that, that she had other engagements and she squeezed in time for this event. But again, the optics of it really look bad. This is something that happens fairly routinely in Washington, that you have a hearing and someone shows up, they arrive late or leave early or aren't there for floor votes and such. Um, it's something that goes unnoticed most of the time. For a special, rare event like this in Phoenix, with, let's be honest, all the local media there watching, um, to see her leave like that, it just feels wrong. It feels like this was the place to be today. And her campaign is dealing with pushback from Republicans and others trying to make an issue of it. There has also been some uh, criticism by Republicans for kind of the optics of her filing day. She uh, had two girls who were kind of dressed similarly to her two children. Uh, and, you know, of course, the immediate um, criticism is that she's trying to pretend that those are her kids, uh, a la the controversy with Ben Quayle back in 2010 when uh, everyone came down on him for featuring uh, two kids who happened to be his nieces in his campaign literature. Uh, they called him a poser, poser family man. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it'll be interesting to see how cinema reacts to this criticism, if uh, she reacts at all. Yeah, this is something that it's, um, it's a mark of how fiercely fought this campaign will ultimately be. They are not going to leave any points on the table. If there's an advantage to be gained, if there's 
a character uh, defining moment that uh, either side thinks they can find, they are going to try and, and get the upper hand here. And, and on this event this week, it looks like the McSally campaign found something they think that can help them. Arizona is about to update its science standards, and despite the recommendations of many dozen science teachers, uh, school superintendent Diane Douglas is proposing to call into question how life has developed. How do you see this playing out? Right. So um, these standards revisions processes are usually sleepy affairs. You know, they're very technical, and at the end of the day, not much changes because you don't really have to change much about math and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, with regards to, to these pr- the proposed revisions to this, these standards, um, you know, it's caused an uproar in the science community, you know, among educators who feel that um, the, the changes that she's proposed are, are trying to um, take evolution and the teaching of evolution out of um, what, you know, middle schoolers and, and, and students here in Arizona are required to learn. Um, this is not the first time that the superintendent has um, gotten involved <laughs> in standards, um, you know, in a pretty intimate level. Um, you know, as you can recall, she, she ran in 2014 on a platform to get rid of Common Core and the, the months uh, following her, her election, um, were really kind of a topsy-turvy process with her feuding with the State Board of Ed and, um, you know, getting into political battles, um, some, some of that um, involving, you know, getting rid of, of the Common Core standards, you know, by her definition of it. So um, at the end of the, di- of the day, the superintendent is one member on an 11-member board that is appointed by uh, Governor Doug Ducey, and Governor Ducey um, reportedly told reporters um, this week that uh, evolution is here to stay. So uh, we'll see how it plays out. But, um, you know, again, when you're talking about being one vote on an 11-member board um, and <laughs> seeing who, who influences the, the board. Do you have a sense as to whether or not this is just Diane Douglas's like a play for, for voters, primary voters, or is this like legitimately where her heart is? I think it's both. Um, to be honest, I think that when she ran, um, you know, her, her platform in 2014, she, she truly did feel that this was an issue um, that she, not only that she could be elected on, but that she felt, you know, strongly about. Um, you know, I, I think it's worth noting that, that, you know, part of her tenure here has been defined by these um, battles, you know, regarding standards. Uh, regarding testing, regarding, you know, all of these <laughs> very technical things. Um, so clearly, to a degree, she feels um, very passionate about this stuff. Um, but again, this is an office where um, you don't have the power or authority to make those unilateral changes on your own. Um, you, the superintendent is influential, Department of Ed influential in many other ways, but Enacting policy is not one of them. She certainly is giving the governor 
and her uh, Democratic rivals and her her primary rival, Frank Riggs. I mean, something to draw clear contrast with her. Uh, with do you have a have a sense of how her stance on this is playing out on the other side of the aisle or with her with for, with Riggs? Um, it's hard to to really kind of get any takeaways at this point because um, as you know it, it's a crowded <laughs> primary field on the Republican side crowded in general there's eight candidates at this point um, I think I think and and five people including Douglas um, are running on the Republican side in the primary and um, you know I, I think at this point um, candidates, at the at the ground level are trying to um, establish you know where they're at in the spectrum um, and you're seeing some of those creases you know come forward um, with regards to the science standards um, you know I saw Bram Resnick tweet out that four of the five you know Republican um, candidates running for superintendent of public instruction support um, you know, the, <laughs> Diane Douglas's, uh, uh, you know, uh, viewpoint here in, in terms of teaching creationism. Ricardo, do you have a sense as to how much of an outlier Arizona would be if we were to go in that direction? In other words, how many states uh, are doing what Diane Douglas would like to do here? I don't have a sense um, as to, you know, where Arizona would stack, but, um, I mean, Arizona has been an outlier regarding... Um, you know, the other topics like student accountability and, and testing and that sort of thing. But um, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't see, I, prior to this, I, I didn't really see this being as an issue that, that people who, who pay attention to education or who um, are glued to, to education happenings were really interested in until um, the superintendent you know, made her suggested revisions, and that's when people came out of the woodwork and started causing an uproar. And so we'll see what happens at that board meeting. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people. Well, that's it for today. Quite the gaggle. Thanks again to uh, David Garcia for joining us. Look for future guests on the gaggle. Uh, thanks for listening. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. You can follow me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. At Ricardo underscore Cano one. And to learn more about voting or to register to vote, check out the Arizona Secretary of State's office. And please subscribe to our show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Thanks to the politics team and also our producers, Haley Sanchez and Carly Henry. We'll see you next week.